Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hi, everyone. My name is Christina Ha. I'm the director of the IBD section at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. So this is the final in a series of four case studies where we'll be addressing knowledge gaps in the area of biosimilars and IBD. In the third episode, we discuss the logistics of switching biosimilars and how to engage all the stakeholders with the transitions to biosimilars, either from the reference product or from biosimilar to biosimilar. So for today's podcast, we'll be addressing some of the approaches to the clinical challenges with biosimilar switching with my esteemed colleagues who are here today. We have Dr. Miguel Ruggiero, who's professor and chair of the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. And returning to join us again is Shiva Bhatt, who's one of the IBD PharmD experts at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. So we're so happy to have you both join us today. So I'm going to start with you first, Miguel. You know, the decisions to switch to a biosimilar oftentimes at the healthcare systems or the insurance company levels, and not really a patient provider level conversation like we would when we're choosing an agent, for example. So knowing our responsibilities as providers to provide the best quality of care for our patients, how do we ensure that we're not compromising care to our patients when we're asking them or telling them they need to switch from a reference to a biosimilar or a biosimilar to a biosimilar? Yes. So thanks, Tina. I think that's an important question. And really simply put to answer your question, there is no quality of care that's being compromised when we switch from a reference to a biosimilar or amongst biosimilars. And I think really a lot of the conversation, as you said, is taken out of our hands in terms of the insurance makes a decision. However, these are patients that have been emotionally attached to their biologic. Their reference is usually what they're attached to. And now all of a sudden they're being told that they are switching. And really what we do, and and you'll hear in a minute, I think from Shuba, we really emphasize and try to comfort them that the quality of care and the efficacy is really no different with the biosimilar. And so Shuba, I want to, you know, um, ask you, you know, as your as part of your role as a, the IBD clinical pharmacist, you actually counsel a lot of patients about making these switches. And what are some of the key factors you find that lead to the hesitancy that patients have towards making these switches? And how do you address them? Yeah, so I think it's primarily due to lack of education. And so unfortunately, a lot of the Switching, if you will, would tend to come out of the blue right now. So a lot of patients will get informed either by a letter or somehow through a word of mouth that, hey, just so you know, the insurance is no longer covering your reference product. You need to switch over to a biosimilar or you need to switch over to this other biosimilar that you were not previously on before. And so it's really a not a good approach right now because it kind of comes out of the blue. And so really the key point is providing the education for fun if you can. But if patients are done informed and they're not aware, really kind of filling in the gaps and again, providing the assurance that this switch is not harmful, essentially that we're keeping the dose the same, the administration, product administration, the side effects, all of that is essentially the same. It's just literally a switching of another product, if you will. And so, Miguel, kind of throwing it back to you, as you mentioned, a lot of the patients are understandably going to be hesitant to make a switch, especially if they've finally gotten to a good place with their Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis management. So 
what other assurances do you provide to patients? Do you wait until they're in a stable remission on a stable dose before making the switch? Do you check labs or do you just empirically make the switch for your patients? What's your approach? I think that's an important question. Again, the approach is often out of our choice in when. So for example, and I'm thinking of multiple cases and instances where we were informed, the patients informed that they must switch based on the insurance. So in terms of timing, in an optimal world, we're switching when they're stable, they're doing well. However, the reality is we now see the switches come at any time. Either patients are flaring or we're starting therapy and then they're told that they need to switch or they're in remission and we're switching. But for I'd say for the most part, these are patients who've been on a reference biologic doing well and then they're switching to the biosimilar. And what I tell them is that based on my experience now, and so fortunately I can tell them based on my personal experience with so many patients, I have not seen a difference and switching has not been an issue. I comfort them with that. Unlike the early days when this was brand new, in the early days when it was brand new, I would cite a lot of the data that's been out there, not only for IBD, but for other immune mediated diseases where switching had no drop off in efficacy or safety. I assure them of that. Now I tell them that, but I also tell them based on my personal experience, I'm not seeing any issues with that and we're not compromising quality of care. And I think that's really the key because at the end of the day, it's that mechanism that they're being treated with. It's not the brand name. There are always going to be patients who are pretty resistant to making that switch. And then that's those are the patients who are pretty susceptible to that nocebo effect. So we know that it happens. So what are you doing when you see the patient who received the biosimilar and now they're calling you off and saying that their symptoms are worse or they had a reaction to the infusion? How do you differentiate? between nocebo and real disease? So oftentimes for the nocebo, so fortunately, one thing I'll tell you now that we're, I feel like we've been in this for years at Cleveland Clinic, I'm seeing that a lot less. I'm not seeing that as much. However, to answer your question, I will, if that happens, I might check a CRP. I might check a fecal calprotectin. I'll tell them it's like anytime they were on the reference agent, If they had symptoms that would signify a flare, let's go ahead and check. If they think they're having a true reaction or we're worried that they might be losing response, I may check drug levels. Now, it's helpful if you have drug levels prior to switching and after switching because I tell them the drug levels that we send as far as when we send them to the lab are no difference between reference and biosimilar. So the same could apply. And you would want to know if they had a good drug level before, a good drug level after that we're really then showing there is no difference. I'm not sure I would necessarily proactively recommend that in every patient, but it's the patient that calls in either having a flare symptoms or feeling that they're having a reaction or loss of response maybe then I would get a level, but that's becoming much less today than I had seen in the past. Yeah. And it seems as though the more and more we get accustomed to using biosilvers, because let's just face it, it's part of our future. They're going to be available for all of our maps, just like generics are going to be available for all of our chemical compounds. That comfort level starts to really rise up, just like when biologics first came to the market. 
So Miguel and Shuba, I'm going to ask you both, but maybe I'll start with you, Shuba, because the Cleveland Clinic is not just one hospital. It's a healthcare systems. And I know that you made the change to biosimilars across the healthcare systems. So what can we learn from your experience in terms of making that switch? What are your practical tips to some of us who are about to make that switch right now? So Shuba, tell us about what your impressions were and how your process was carried out. Yeah, so I think the most important thing really, Tina, is to make sure that you have a biosimilar champion. So have one person that's assigned to this process, that's dedicated to this process from really seeing it from beginning to end. But we know there's several components in the switch process. There's formulary management, there's deciding among which products to stock in the formulary, what payers are going to cover what. There's the education component, making sure that the team themselves are well-equipped to handle all the questions, the transition process, that they're there themselves to comfortable with the biosimilar products we have. Then there's the authorization component, to making sure that that process is seamless. We haven't necessarily touched upon the concept of interchangeability because we haven't necessarily seen it be applicable yet, but it's coming in 2023. So right, every product requires a different authorization. They're making sure that that transition happens seamlessly when it does need to occur making sure that there's someone that's following up with these patients, they're keeping them in the loop, providing the education as needed, assuring that there's a plan in place for when the transition happens, they were seamless. And for example, that includes making sure that they sign up for the right copay system, so that they basically have everything all online, they know what to expect, and it's going to be a smooth transition. And then I think that having a helpful follow-up, like kind of going back to Miguel's point, we're more comfortable biosimilars now. But at the time of when we were doing the Cleveland Clinic Transition, we did like to have kind of like a surveillance program to ensure and again provide more comfort to our patients internally that we're making the switch and are doing great and that there's no concerns really that is stemming the use of biosimilars. So I've kind of outlined the whole map there, but again, really having a biosimilar champion is going to be the best thing or the best approach of making sure that the process really goes seamlessly from beginning to end. So I love that. And, you know, I wish we could clone you to be part of every healthcare systems. But Miguel, we know that many healthcare systems don't have a Shuba. And I completely agree. We need a biosimilars champion. Who should that be if they don't have an IBD clinical pharmacist, which we know every institution should, but until then, how do you identify this person and how do you ensure they get the right training to pass the right information? Yeah, you stole my recommendation, which is to clone Shubabat for every center. But to your point, that's not practical. You know, I think one key point, as I was hearing Shuba talk, that I think is important is make sure your own team is very comfortable with this. And your own team includes your secretary, your nurses, your physicians, your APPs, whoever it may be. Because if your team's not comfortable and a patient calls in anxious, that's not going to go over well. To your point, Tina, I don't know that it's the champion has to be one person in every group that's the same. However, for us, it could be the nurse. It could be an APP. So if Shuba weren't here, it may be somebody that has the ability and is interfacing with patients on an educational level all the time. I do think it's going to be somebody who's interfacing quite a bit. So I would say if it's not a pharmacist, it's probably going to be a nurse or one of the APPs that's going to likely play that role. But I could even see in private practices, it might be one of the secretaries or the MAs. It's somebody who's just comfortable having that experience and that discussion, keeping up to date, knowing where the websites are for educational information to link the patients to. That's really the most important thing in the champion. 
So, you know, from a practical standpoint, I'll first ask you, Miguel, then Shuba, you know, let's say we get a letter in the mail that blank insurance company is now switching everybody on the reference product to a biosimilar effective four weeks from now. What is our timeline to ensure that all the patients we take care are informed and prepared for the switch, including our team? Because that's a short period of time for a lot of patients. So how do we do this efficiently? Yeah, so we went through it at Cleveland Clinic, you mentioned. Now, now, fortunately, it wasn't sprung on us in four weeks. There was a long buildup over a year, and there were different phases. But to your point now, I think using the electronic medical system to help you, whether it's my chart, if you're using a my chart, coming up with some standard language and information that we can disseminate quickly and then also having the ability to have, whether it's a phone call with the nurse, the secretary, a virtual or a telemedicine visit with the physician or even the APP. And I realize how busy people are, but the number of patients that actually, I think you need that face-to-face on the physician level or even the APP level is pretty small. So I think utilizing your electronic system is probably what I would say is important and taking information and education from programs like this and disseminating. So Shuba, any additional resources to help disseminate that information in a concise and efficient manner? Yeah, so I agree with Miguel's approach. I think my chart will definitely, my chart and audio, even if you have the ability, send a blast within your EHR. Letters are probably a little bit more limited. Not everyone tends to read those letters that come in the mail, I'll say. I think the other useful thing is that anytime you're actually having a patient touch, it really takes only like a second or two to just introduce the concept of biosimilar. Just say, hey, you're on this medication now. I um, just want to let you know that there's other products that are, have the same active ingredient that's going to be coming down the line. And so this is actually a great opportunity within a biometric realm, if you will, because we do a lot around medication education and monitoring. And so when I have the opportunity, I'm always including that as part of my spiel or education, if you will. So it's just a useful quick intervention to get patients up to speed. And then lastly, just communicating that all the patients should inform the office anytime this insurance related documentation comes through, because the sooner we know, the sooner we're able to act on it and make sure that it's a seamless transition. Now, I completely agree because we're going to need a new authorization because even though it's the same mechanism, it is a different company. So we have to have enough time for that. And I agree that consistent messaging is really the key to building confidence, especially if you engage all of your team members. And I think that there's a lot of great resources that are out there. So with that, we're all out of time. So I'd like to thank Miguel and Shuba for your expert opinion and advice as we're all trying to make these transitions to ensure the quality of care for our patients. And I'd like to thank our supporters, Amgen and Pfizer, for their educational support for these podcasts, and also refer you to the important resources that are present on the AGA Biosimilars page, not only for providers, but for patients as well, on agau.gastro.org. Really some great information to help start these conversations with your team and patients. Thanks so much, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.